Hello and welcome to the Asimov Cast. Short bursts of joy, thoughtfulness and inspiration from the works of Isaac Asimov. I'm Lozzie. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at AsimovCast or email to AsimovCast at gmail.com. This week we'll be covering two more Susan Calvin stories, Risk and Escape. Risk was first published in 1955 in the May issue of Astounding Science Fiction. We pick back up at Hyperspace some years later. Nigel Ronson of Interplanetary Press is nagging the etheric engineer Gerald Black for news. Nigel runs through the other people around, Major General Richard Kalmer, Dr. Susan Calvin, and Director Schloss. None of them are inclined to share information with him. Hence, he is picking on poor Gerald to find out if this ship, the ship Parsec, is going to work. The ship is the first with a hyperspace drive. They have tuned it and tuned it, tested it extensively with white mice, and managed to get them to travel and return intact. Well, physically intact. The mice who made the trip didn't return with their minds intact. Same with the chimpanzee, they would sit still, not eat, not run. Nothing that's ever gone into hyperspace has returned with its mind intact. Nigel asks Gerald if he expects the experiment to succeed, and he does not, because a robot is in charge. Gerald is anti-robot. He thinks all engineers and technologists have come to rely on them too much. Worse, while they can train the robot to conduct this experiment, he doesn't think it's a fair comparison. How can we truly learn the impact on an organic mind from that of a positronic one? Gerald has been distraught by the impact on the animal minds that were tested. The time counts down toward the robot testing the ship. The last minute ticks away and the robot pulls the starter bar. And nothing happens. No flicker, no movement. Kalner, Calvin and Schloss are reviewing the failure. Schloss is sure there's something mechanical. The theory, after all, is sound. Susan suggests they likely wouldn't have learned anything useful anyway, comparing positronic and organic brains, aligning herself, perhaps surprisingly, with Black's earlier comments. Schloss starts to get a little hysterical, but Susan calms the situation down and asks for answers to some questions. Schloss pushes back, but Susan is not an etheric engineer. But Kalner, having been present uh, present for the events of Little Lost Robot, wearily sighs and tells Schloss to comply. Schloss and the other engineers are worried, freaked out in fact, because the ship did not move, but it could be a wholly temporary mechanical failure. At any time the failure might cease, the ship would jump and the calculations originally applied would no longer be valid, given the movement of the solar system subsequently. So the ship could disappear at any given time and they would never know where it ended up. Similarly, bungling around trying to shut off the drive could easily cause it to be triggered. Schloss wants to send a robot in to investigate one of the nesters from before, but Susan overrides this. A human will have to go in. She sends for Gerald Black. Black is scathing and bitter and calls anyone who would go into the ship an idiot and a fool. And he recalls the fate of the chimpanzee. He refuses the request, but it is not a request. This is a quasi-military mission. He is ordered to do so, and if he refuses, he would face court-martial. Cornered, 
and determined to wipe the look on Susan's face, he concedes to go to the Parsec. A ship drops him in nearby, and he navigates through space to land on the asteroid base of the Parsec. He finds the door and enters. He shuts off his radio. Any report back to hyperbase will be his. He's not wanting to provide any immediate commentary. He finds the robot and orders it to release the control bar. Nothing happens. As Black fantasizes about his revenge on Susan, he continues to explore and find out about the robot. There was nothing on board the ship that hadn't been tested multiple times. Nothing except for the robot. Black suddenly has an epiphany, checks that Schloss is watching, and smashes one of the relays, deactivating the hyperfields. On his return, Black is treated as a hero and summons Kalner, Schloss, and Susan for a debrief. He triumphantly drops his insights, looking to goad Susan. The cause of the failure was the robot. She says she suspected this. The robots were made to be better than men. She says she is not responsible for the marketing department. And the robot had misinterpreted, pulled the bar firmly, and had in fact bent the bar, preventing the drive's engagement. Black is a little disappointed that he can't get a rise out of her, but he insists the public won't be in the mood to excuse US robotics from sending a man in instead of a robot. Kalner reminds him that this information is classified and unproven. Black drops his final bomb, that he is resigning from the project. He will become a missionary, decrying how robotic life is now more valuable than human life. He will wipe out US robotics in the solar system. He's a hero. The press and Earth will listen to him and lionize him. He smugly rises to leave. Susan holds him there with a word. She chose him because she knew he was a sceptic. That he had expressed disapproval of the mission, his disdain for robots because of their lack of ingenuity and invention is not a bug, it's a feature. Of course they couldn't send another robot in to solve this problem, because they couldn't begin to come close to settling the parameters of what you look for. You can't ask a robot, find out what's wrong. You can only tell a man to do so. She in fact played him, making him angry enough to overcome his very natural fear for his sanity. Crushed and gobsmacked, he listens as Susan tells him to return to his job, accept his hero status and tell his reporter friend that that's the story. He wearily shakes her hand and suggests her part should be publicised, but she shoots back that this is her job. Things that inspired me and made me think. Um, so this is a direct sequel from a previous story, and actually we'll see this a couple more times as well. Um, we have some very serialized st storytelling, actually, um, both in the Donovan and Powell books, but also in the Susan Calvin stories. Um, Parsec, it's nice to see it as a um, name of a ship, a uh, measure of distance, not a measure of time. Uh, we'll come back to that later, and um, George Lucas can also uh, reflect on that as well. Um, the hubris that we see for um, Gerald is um, quite satisfying, but it does happen very, very quickly at the end. Um, but Calvin's uh, one more thing, uh, Gunner Colombo, is quite a joyful way to wrap this up. Uh, again, it's, it is tough to um, fully engage and enjoy these stories where the uh, protagonist is written so uh, meanly. But uh, it is fun to watch uh, Be Smart and, uh, and Win in the End.
Escape was first published in 1945 in the August issue of Astounding Science Fiction. Susan returns from Hyperbase and Alfred Lanning is waiting, asking how close they are to the hyperatomic drive. He's worried that Consolidated Robots, US Robotics and Mechanical Men's competitor, might be into it. While they don't have positronic machines, they do have robots, and the company is worried. Robertson, the son of the founder, has called a big meeting to discuss the issue. Consolidated Robots has approached them with a proposition concerning the analysis of interstellar propulsion. It's easy for me to say. And significant money if they could either solve or disprove their maths. The twist is, apparently performing this calculation and analysis broke Consolidated's main thinking machine. This is more complex, though. It's a three laws problem. The brain... U.S. Robotics and Mechanical Men's premier positronic engine could not provide a solution that would involve the death or injury of a human. If given such a problem with sufficiently urgent demand, a robot could enter into a dilemma. It could neither answer nor refuse to answer. Consolidated's machine is purely a calculator, though it has no personality, and these are too tied to U.S. Robotics patterns. The brain... It has only the personality of a child, but it is more resilient and it can pause and reject ideas without its pathways being ruined. This will allow them to identify the area of the problem which causes the breakdown, and from there, maybe, identify the dilemma themselves. Susan briefs the brain on the solution, noting that they don't mind about the death of humans in this case only. So, if it pines a part of the solution that would cause that, it shouldn't worry, just identify it and pass it back. The brain consumes the problem and pauses, but then calmly and confidently says it can build the ship in only two months. Susan Calvin is very worried about this and takes over managing the brain, but they all let it get on with its build. Meanwhile, if US Robotics is going to test this ship that's being built, they need their best field men, Mike Donovan. Greg Powell. The ship is built, and Lanning briefs Donovan and Powell on the situation. They enter the ship and find sleek monotony, rooms and corridors gently curving and glistening. Finally, they find one room with a glass screen and a single dial. A needle hard to zero, the scale reads parsecs and goes from nil to one million, with two chairs nearby. Donovan is freaked out, but Powell is calm. They haven't seen any engines anywhere after all. Surely the kit ship can't fly. They decide to depart it and inform Lanning, but find there's no way to exit the ship. The entry lever does not work, and there are no emergency exits. They return back to the room with the screen, but suddenly they can't see the sky anymore. They only see space, and they collapse into the chairs. Susan has been questioning the brain for two months. Got nowhere. She discusses with Lanning when suddenly they hear the alarm that the ship has gone. Susan goes to discuss with the brain who confirms that, with the test pilots on board, he told the ship to depart. He's confident that they'll find the experience interesting. There is, however, a radio. They can call Donovan and Powell. Our boys realise the situation they're in. The ship operates based on no known propulsion and it must have been started by remote control, by the brain's control. Powell is relaxed about this. The first law means that surely they can't be in any true danger. 
Donovan, characteristically, is not. Their debate is interrupted by the radio calls, shouting at them to report. They shout back, but cannot find anything to respond with. Powell and Donovan explore further and find a toilet and a kitchen with food and drink. Well, with baked beans and with milk, at least. They look back at the dial, and it is still hard-pressed to zero. Back at the base, Susan has been frustrated by the brain, who admits it's in control, but says everything is safe. It even gets a bit sullen at the questioning. Susan thinks perhaps there's some hysteria, and asks for 12 hours to solve this. In the meantime, the physicists are wondering about the nature of the space warp, and how this would conflict with the finite speed of light, and how surely this wasn't possible to survive. Five days have passed for Donovan and Powell, and they're getting pretty fed up with beans and milk and the lack of a bath. Suddenly, they begin to feel a vibration. The ship begins to shake. It seems the ship is ready to jump, and Powell feels a stab of pain. Something breaks loose in the ship, falls, whirls around. They feel like death is coming. And suddenly, Powell hears adverts for coffins. Songs about being glad they're gone. He follows a white thread up a stairway of sound. He talks to people in line to speak with St. Peter. And then wakes up in his chair in the main room of the ship. The readout on the dial says, 300,000 parsecs. Susan is still debating with the brain, trying to find things out. She finally asks that the interstellar jump won't hurt Donovan and Powell. And the brain evades and dodges the question. It does not want to answer. Susan gently pushes, and the brain says, she spoils everything. Susan's face lights up with insight and embarrassment. She tells Lanning that the ship will return safely, and she goes to bed. The ship returns, Donovan and Powell walks out, and they ask for a shower. They're led away to debrief, and Susan confesses the truth. This is somewhat her fault. For the period of the jump, both men had died, but came back to life on re-entering normal space. She had diminished the brain's concern for human life, and it had found a solution due to the temporary nature of the death. This subtlety had not been possible for Consolidated's machine, but the brain, as an adolescent, had found it a bit of a joke. In fact, it has developed a sense of humour. A radio that could only communicate, but not respond. Food and drink, but only milk and beans. The brain was a practical joker. But somehow, they've come out of this with a hyperspace drive. Things that inspired me or made me think... um, this is not the first time I've thought this, but an awful lot of these uh, stories would be shortcutted if uh, there was a kill minus nine command, or they could just tell the robot to stop doing what it's doing. Um, but obviously that's not contained within the three laws. Um, where I found joy, um, it's a crossover. <laughs> it's great. Like, I mean, it, it, again, another very direct sequel um, from uh, the last two Susan Calvin stories. But also we get to bring in Donovan and Powell here. Um, they don't really interact with Susan too much in this story, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but um, it's great to have them all together in one. Um, I kind of love the chaotic nature of the brain as well. That's just uh, That's just a bit of good fun.
And thank you for joining me. You can find me at Mean Englishman on Twitter. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Asimovcast. The theme music is courtesy of Alexei Chistilin from Pixabay. Please email your thoughts, what inspires you and where you find joy in Asimov, to asimovcast at gmail.com. The stories in this section of the book have been getting longer and longer, so I'm going to shift the format for now to one story per episode. Next time, I'll be covering evidence. Go now. Do not harm humanity, or by inaction, allow humanity to come to harm.